You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Doug Weaver, president of the American College of Cardiology. Long-term anticoagulation is often viewed as inconvenient and somewhat risky, even for patients with atrial fibrillation who are at elevated risk for stroke. Are these factors overshadowing the evidence and effectiveness of anticoagulant therapy in preventing stroke? And how do this series of anticoagulants, warfarin, aspirin, and clopidogrel, compare as preventative agents? Our guest today is Dr. John Cairns, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the University of British Columbia. Welcome, John. Thanks, Doug. Pleasure to be here. John, what's new on the anticoagulation front for patients that need to be anticoagulation with cardiac disease? And we're talking specifically about atrial fibrillation, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I think atrial fibrillation would be a good place. Well, the evidence has accumulated over the last 20 years for the efficacy of various antithrombotic therapies in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. We knew as early as the late 1980s that there was quite a dramatic drop in the risk of stroke in patients who received warfarin compared to no antithrombotic therapy. And I think what's changed in the last 20 years is simply the accumulation of more and more evidence for this efficacy. The concerns have been there about bleeding, of course, more recent studies have looked at this issue perhaps a little more closely than has been the case in earlier studies. More recent studies have looked at the role of aspirin and have compared aspirin to warfarin. And then the newer antiplatelet agent, clopidogrel, has also been studied. So we have more information than we had, say, 20 years ago, but it's been entirely consistent with the early observations at that time. Uh, patients who are properly anticoagulated with warfarin, whose uh, international normalized ratio is kept in the range of 2 to 3, have a dramatic reduction of all strokes uh, when uh, they're compared to patients who don't receive warfarin. Aspirin works, but it's not nearly as effective and surprisingly doesn't have that much less bleeding than warfarin. And the addition of clopidogrel to aspirin, which uh, it was hoped might be similarly effective to warfarin, perhaps with less bleeding, actually hasn't worked out. So through all of this, warfarin has emerged as an extremely effective drug and used properly safe. So let's get into some of those details. The first question I'd ask you is, do all patients with atrial fibrillation or paroxysmal atrial fibrillation deserve anticoagulation? Well, that's a good question, a good place to start. So the answer is probably close to all of them, but perhaps not all of them. Studies have looked at a whole range of patients with atrial fibrillation and have compared using warfarin or not using warfarin. Within those studies, however, it's possible to see quite a range in the risk of stroke depending on a number of risk factors. So we now recognize that patients who've had a previous stroke are at very high risk of having another one. So those are high-risk patients. People who have elevated blood pressure, people who have congestive failure, diabetes, these are factors that add risk. And then elderly patients as well, particularly patients over the age of 75, have an increased risk of having a stroke when they have atrial fibrillation. So that then gives us a risk scale or a schedule or a number of them around, uh, ways to judge who's at most risk of having a stroke. The most used one is the CHADS-2 system. So in a fairly simple, quick way, a physician can look at a patient who has atrial fibrillation 
and decide whether they have an annual risk of stroke of under 1% or perhaps as high as 12 or 13%, and then make decisions about whether the risks associated with warfarin are justified. Most patients who have atrial fibrillation, unless they have some specific contraindication to warfarin, benefit from it. A very young patient, a patient under the age of 60, who has absolutely no risk factors for stroke apart from atrial fibrillation, doesn't need warfarin. Aspirin is sufficient, and there's even some argument that some of those very young patients with absolutely no risk factors whatsoever apart from their atrial fibrillation may not even need to be on aspirin. But the vast majority of patients who have atrial fibrillation warrant treatment, and the great majority of those patients, warfarin is more effective than aspirin. Now let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. There are those elderly patients with lots of comorbid illness, perhaps some dementia, you're worried about patients falling and so on. Is it safe to put those people on aspirin? Or what do you do in those kind of situations? Every patient is an individual. So from the trials, we get an overall picture. We know what to do across a population. But of course, it's not a group of people who walks into your office. It's an individual. And the 85-year-old gentleman who has had atrial fibrillation for some time, may have some treated hypertension, may have a history of some congestive heart failure, and perhaps has diabetes, and yet is intelligent, able to look after himself. The risk of stroke is very, very high, and the risk of bleeding, although it's higher than it is in a young person, the risk of stroke outweighs it. So warfarin is still tremendously advantageous in such an elderly person with risk factors. And we, we know this from studies as recently as the Birmingham study, which actually looked at very elderly patients. And those patients did have more bleeding, but they had a dramatically better outcome taking warfarin, even compared to aspirin. On the other hand, a patient who, again, is elderly may have difficulty managing their medications and yet is living on their own, may be having some falls from time to time, Warfarin carries a substantial risk, and it may be preferable to use aspirin in such a patient. The risk of bleeding with aspirin is less than warfarin, although surprisingly not as less as we have assumed. And then there will be occasional patients who simply can't take either warfarin or aspirin. They may have had a previous GI bleed. They may be very unreliable or have great difficulty controlling their medications, could be alcoholic. Even though they have a risk, a substantial risk of having a stroke because of their atrial fibrillation, the risks of fatal bleeding may outweigh those. So there are some patients where it's simply contraindicated and we have to face the fact that we don't have an effective and safe therapy. But those are definitely in the minority. I think we err on the side of too much reluctance to give these antithrombotic agents and fail to recognize how high is the risk of stroke in so many of these people from their atrial fibrillation. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Weaver. Our guest today is Dr. John Cairns, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the University of British Columbia. We're discussing stroke prevention for patients with atrial fibrillation. John, what about the management of anticoagulation in patients who undergo orthopedic procedures and they have been taking warfarin for atrial fibrillation? 
There's a whole range of surgical procedures. You've mentioned orthopedic procedures where, say, it might be a hip replacement or something of that sort. If they have atrial fibrillation and they're already on warfarin, it really does need to be discontinued in association with that surgery. There are a range of views about what to do while they're off the anticoagulant. You want to take them into the operating room with their INR under about 1.5 so that the likelihood of bleeding in association with a major surgery is low. A reasonable approach if they're going to be off anticoagulation for more than four or five days would be the use of low molecular weight heparin and therapeutic dose, which can then be stopped about 12 hours prior to surgery. And then the patient can be restarted on their warfarin as long as there's been no significant postoperative bleeding in about 24 hours after the surgery, and the warfarin will take effect over the next two or three days. If we think about the annual risk of having a stroke with atrial fibrillation not on warfarin, it's about 4.5%. So if you look at the risk of having a stroke in about seven days, off warfarin or on lower doses of warfarin, it's quite small. It's real, but it's small. And being off warfarin, particularly for major surgery for several days, is generally not a major concern. If it's any longer than that, the use of heparin can get the patient through this episode. Another thing we often are faced with is dental procedures, where there's some surgical procedure in the mouth or even extractions. And you have to go to the right dentist. There are plenty of dentists who are experienced in dealing with patients on anticoagulation and with an expert dentist who understands the problem can minimize trauma and use oral hemostatic agents. Now, the patient can actually, as long as their INR is in the therapeutic range, two to three, should be checked before going to the dentist. The warfarin therapy doesn't need to be altered at all. So there's a range from a period of having to be off it, it's obligatory to be off with major surgery such as a hip replacement to minor surgical procedures in expert hands with local hemostasis that does not necessitate any interruption of the warfarin therapy as long as the INR is in the therapeutic range. You mentioned clopidogrel. What, if any, role does clopidogrel have in managing anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation? As you know, we have a lot of evidence that the addition of clopidogrel to aspirin in settings of percutaneous interventions, acute coronary syndromes, is tremendously beneficial, and therefore it seemed sensible if aspirin was not as good as warfarin for atrial fibrillation, perhaps adding clopidogrel to aspirin would be as effective as warfarin and hopefully would be safer in terms of bleeding. And the active trial looked at this issue in patients who were warfarin eligible. They compared aspirin and clopidogrel together to warfarin. Of course, the hope was it would be similarly effective and perhaps safer and unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. The patients on combination of aspirin and clopidogrel had far more strokes than those who were on warfarin. And surprisingly, the bleeding was not significantly different. It was hoped that it would be much less. So what looked like a sensible idea actually hasn't worked out. So there isn't a role for the combination of aspirin and clopidogrel in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And my last question, John, is... You have a patient, say that only age or maybe a history of controlled hypertension are their risk factors. They have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Can I ever stop the warfarin? Um, that's a good question as well. You know, I think you're looking for a patient who has a very low risk of stroke. And as I mentioned before, people who, when you add up all the risk factors in the CHAD scale, they say they're at one. 
you might reasonably choose aspirin over warfarin. There's still a slightly higher chance that they'll have a stroke with the warfarin than the aspirin, and they'll probably have less bleeding if they're on the aspirin. So it's a reasonable alternative. Now, you mentioned perhaps somebody who's been on warfarin, and you're wondering whether you could ever stop it. There are some instances of reversible atrial fibrillation. You know, people who get atrial fibrillation in association with a viral illness or may have had valve, or may have had a cardiac surgical procedure or may have had pneumonia or something like that, may have had hyperthyroidism. And the precipitating circumstance has passed by and perhaps the atrial fibrillation has resolved. If they were on warfarin, those would be good candidates to not continue it. But people who stay in atrial fibrillation, and if they've been on warfarin and have tolerated it, then there's really no expectation that they'll stop. The atrial fibrillation in those instances is likely to be lifelong, and fortunately, if they've been on warfarin without problem, that strengthens the rationale for keeping them on it permanently. And in those patients that had what appeared to be a transient cause for atrial fibrillation, how long would you wait before trying to make that decision of stopping warfarin? That's a good question as well. Usually, I'd have a good hard look at what the circumstances were, and sometimes it's obvious. They had a surgical procedure, and they had postoperative atrial fibrillation, and it's resolved, or they had a pneumonia, or they had an alcoholic indiscretion, or something of that sort. In many instances, those people don't get on warfarin, but for one reason or another, say they do get on warfarin. If the condition has passed and there's been no recurrence for two to three months, then it would certainly be appropriate to stop the warfarin. That's a little different from paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. There are people who we don't necessarily understand why they're having atrial fibrillation, but they have episodes that may last a few days or a few hours, but they're recurrent. And the studies show that the risk of stroke in these patients isn't too much different from those who have permanent atrial fibrillation. So when you're thinking about possibly stopping warfarin, you really should have reached a decision that you've got a patient who had a clear precipitating cause for atrial fibrillation. That precipitating cause has resolved, and they've been two or three months without any atrial fibrillation. That's different from people who have episodic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation where there's an ongoing risk of stroke. And even though their atrial fib is not there all the time, their risk of stroke is not too different from patients who have persistent atrial fibrillation. We've been talking with Dr. John Cairns about stroke prevention for patients with atrial fibrillation. John, thank you for being our guest. Oh, you're welcome, Doug. I enjoyed being with you. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.